Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can be seated. Uh, it's good to be here with you. If you're the type that likes to follow along in an actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start there and um, journey a bit together. Um, thank you so much for being so kind to me and hospitable. It's so good to be here with you. Let me start by giving you an authentic um, invitation back to tonight. Um, when I come to a place, I always put something very special aside for the evening meeting because then I can invite people. So I, I promise you I've set aside something very special. I, I'm so confident that what we're going to do tonight will change your life. Here's how confident I am. Right? Come put, put aside an hour and a half tonight, right? That's the whole service. That's not just my part. Put aside an hour and a half tonight, right? And, and if it doesn't change your life, right? if it doesn't change your life, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, I'll refund whatever they charge you to come at night, okay? <laughs> so whatever the ticket is, I, I don't know. I've never been here before. Right? Whatever that ticket is, totally 100% risk-free, all right? all right? Now, after the service today um, in the foyer, you're, you're going to see our resource table there. If you walk out into the foyer that way and you can't find our resource table, seek medical help, okay? It's, it's taking up half the room. And, and if you wonder, if you wonder why would you carry that around with you, it's because we make a lot of money from it, okay? And, and the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So, so 100% of everything we ever make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have, we have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. But we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town flats. Okay? So my team is out there. you got Cindy, Linda, and Steph. They'll be glad to help you. Um, I'm going to the city campus. I'm not being antisocial. I'll, I'll be back tonight. Um, but I'm going straight to the city campus to preach there and then come back. But you guys can uh, check those things out. And as always, uh, we give that away. So it's my first time here. And I thought, you know what? When it's the first time in a place, uh, Communication 101 is, is find common ground, right? So you gotta, you got to find common ground. I thought, what could I talk about the first time I'm here? And I thought, oh, Jesus. Jesus will be good. Let's, let's talk about Let's talk about Jesus uh, uh, for a bit. I, I, want to, I want to read you a passage of Scripture that actually on its surface makes no sense. And then I want to, uh, I want to explain it. And I, want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Now, it's, I've, I've got like 35 minutes, okay? So, so I, I, there's, it's, too, it's too little time to fully exhaust Jesus, right? Is Jesus son of God? Sure. Is he son of man? Yeah. Is he a lion? Sure. A lamb? Yeah. Prophet? Yeah. Priest? Yeah. King, yeah, and we embrace all of that. But when you got 35 minutes, you got to pick one and go with that. I want to talk to you about a side of Jesus that I'm not sure gets enough playtime. I think we know it, but, but I don't think it gets enough playtime. Orthodox Christianity is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so I want to talk to you about the human part of, of Jesus. I want to talk to you about what it meant in the first century to be called a disciple of a rabbi, named, in our case, named Jesus, that as followers of Jesus, we're following a first century rabbi. Now, how do I know he was a rabbi? Because they called him rabbi, right? And, and rabbi was a special distinction that they only gave to very few people. As a matter of fact, in the whole Bible, there's only three people called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. That's it. That's it. It was special. And I, I want to show you this this morning. This is Matthew chapter 4. If you could bring that. There you go. This is uh, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. If you're a note taker, that's an important line, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, another important line, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. 
that's odd. Next slide. So going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and, their bro- and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. What an odd sequence of events. But he goes four for four with this sales pitch. Follow me, and you've got grown men leaving everything. Wives, family, children, jobs, communities, jobs, boats. To follow a guy whose sales pitch is, follow me? Okay, here we go, right? Like, how does that conversation even go? Like, if you're married, and you come home, it's like, hey, how was your day? I quit my job. You did what? I quit my job. Why? This guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought it was a good idea. Like, how does, how does that even work? Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just told me to follow him. I thought that was awesome, right? That seems like a horrible sales pitch. But it worked, and it worked a lot. That, that's four for four. Here's the fifth disciple. Next slide. This is a guy named uh, Matthew. With Levi, they changed his name to Matthew. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him. He began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up and followed him. This is weird. Grown people leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is this simple. Follow me. What is going on here? You might be thinking, Shane, he's, he's God. Yeah, but that, they, they didn't know that. And they don't figure that out until way later. And to come out of the wilderness claiming to be God does not lend itself to credibility, right? They had to figure that out later. There must be something else going on here. And when I saw this and I learned it, it changed my life. I'd like to share it with you. Because I want Jesus to get bigger this morning. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger. Not smaller. So let's see if we could do this. See, to understand this, we got to understand every Hebrew boy longed to be a rabbi. It was the highest honor. To be trusted to teach holy scripture. It was the biggest honor. It's sort of like this. How many boys in New Zealand grow up wanting to play rugby? All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the All Blacks? Almost none of them, right? At some point, you're told you're not good enough to play at the next level. You're going to have to go make a living somewhere else. But the best of 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 the best will somehow find their way to playing for the All Blacks. This is why every 45-year-old man in New Zealand has a back-in-the-day story, you know. Like, oh, I was really good back in the day, but I hurt my knee, you know. And it's like, wait, well, you probably... You probably actually weren't that good. This, this is how it was to be a rabbi. It, it was the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. To be entrusted with scripture was a huge thing. Let me see if I can run it through with you very quickly. In order to be a rabbi, first thing you had to do is you had to memorize Leviticus. By age six. So before the age of six... You had to memorize Leviticus. Now, if you memorize Leviticus before the age of six, it qualified you to go to elementary school. These schools had names. Let me show them to you. Next slide. So the first school was called the Bet Safar. Now, with some go all blacks gusto, can you say that word with me? It sounds like this. Bet Safar. Ready? Go. Bet Safar. Bet Safar, it means literally the school of the book. It's like elementary school. And it lasted from six to twelve. 
right? And from 6 to 12, you had to memorize the whole scripture. That day, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You had to memorize the entire Torah and prove that you had memorized the Torah in order to qualify to take the exam to qualify you for the next school. Now, that should lead to a question. If to even qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize the book, what could they possibly be testing you on? If to even qualify to take the exam, you had to prove you memorized the book. Here's what they did. The Torah exam was not based on your mastery of content. You had to master the content to even take the exam. Your Torah exam was based on your ability to ask questions about the content in order to keep a conversation about God going. Great rabbis were not known for their ability to answer questions, but for their ability to ask questions in order to keep the conversation going. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, 12, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. And if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you qualified to go to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud, with the same amount of gusto. Could you say that with me? Bet Talmud. Now, Bet Talmud literally translates the school of disciple, disciple school, right? And in the Bet Talmud, a rabbi would ordain you into his rabbi school, and he would mentor you for 18 years. 18 years and through five levels, okay? So for the sake of time and relevance, we'll call those levels one, two, three, four, five. And the idea was is that if you get through stage one, you graduate to stage Yes, 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 we're together, right? And from two to three, three to four, four to five. And this lasted from 12 to 30. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30 years old, he shows up again, and people are going, Rabbi, 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 this is what would have went on. And you go from one to two to three to four to five. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to just stick for a second with five. And let's assume we all make it through the first four levels. By stage five, everybody is a rabbi. Everybody has made it. The highest honor. The only question to be solved yet is what kind of rabbi will you be? And there were two types of rabbis. There were rabbis without authority, which was 99.9% .9 of all rabbis, were rabbis without authority. But every now and then, once about every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special, they would endue that rabbi with a title, a rabbi with authority. Now, the difference between a rabbi without authority and a rabbi with authority was simply this. A rabbi without authority had to teach the scripture the same way his rabbi taught him. And, and, and so what would happen is, is no matter what rabbi you were, your teaching of scripture is somehow traced back to a rabbi with authority. All right. So if you were a rabbi without authority, you were bound to teaching the scripture the same way your rabbi taught you. But if you were a rabbi with authority, it meant you could make up your own way of interpreting Scripture, right? So that, that you could essentially think of it this way for today. You could start your own movement. You could start your own way of thinking about these Scriptures. Now, this is the most important word I'm going to teach you this morning. Let me show you this word. Next slide. So the word is samika. Now, this is the Hebrew word that means authority, all right? So let's try that with some good all-blacks gusto. Ready? Go. Samika. That's very good. Let's try it again with a little more gusto because it's fun. Go. Samika. Now, if you want to sound Jewish, which we all do, let me teach you one more move. Ready? The move is this. 
All right? All right? So let's, let's, let's try that together. Yeah, yes, very good. Very, very good. Now, ready? Let's go. Yes, yes. So there were rabbis without authority, but then every so often a rabbi came along so special, he would be called a rabbi with Samika. There we go. Ready? Let's, all right, so let's, try, let's try that again. You ready? So there's rabbis without authority, and then there's rabbis with Samika. Yes. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. Now, why? Because they baptized you every time you changed social status, right? So if you went from... from unmarried to married, they baptize you. If you went from clean, unclean to clean and you needed to announce that you could be touched, they would baptize you. This is why we get baptized today, to publicly declare we were once unclean and now Jesus has touched us and we are now clean, right? right? So, so, so but when you went from not rabbi to rabbi, they had to announce that. So your commencement was basically a, a, a baptism, all right? Now, the way they determined who had samika... Yes. The way they determine who had Samika and who didn't is at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world world whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi. Still a high honor, but a normal, regular rabbi. Until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It was, like, it was, almost, like, it was almost like God was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. Which now means he can make up his own yoke. A rabbi's way of interpreting scripture was called his yoke. It was a summary statement of how he interpreted scripture, how to live life, what he bound, what he loosed, which is a way of saying what he forbidden or what he allowed within his yoke. Think about your scripture. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach. In other words, you're saying something new. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. Yes, that doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. And to say something new, you had to have samika. You had to have authority. You had to have the right to make up your own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. <laughs> now, the first thing a rabbi would do is he would go get disciples. Why? Because a rabbi not teaching somebody, what are you doing? You're just sitting around thinking about stuff that would like make you a monk or something, right? And so think about the story. If you're the new rabbi, you've got to go get disciples. Where would you go get disciples? From the Bet Talmud. And what you would find 
is you would find pre-vetted 12-year-old boys. Pre-vetted. They were already brilliant. They were already disciplined. They were already, they shown their proclivities to be able to ask questions. They had already memorized the scriptures. You didn't have to ask, were they skilled? They were pre-vetted for you. And here's what the new rabbis would do. They would go to the Betel Mid and they had to ask one question. One, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And if the rabbi believed that that kid could do greater things than him one day, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But most of them were only ever told, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes to make it. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But this new rabbi, does he go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples? No, he goes to the lake. And what does he find at a lake? He finds fishermen. Hang on a second. If they were fishermen, what does that mean? It means they were disqualified by the religious elite. And he goes there and he says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity to have a chance back at that high honor. Why? Why? Because the yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. That is the yoke of our rabbi. First four disciples, what was their job? Fisherman. Fifth disciple, what was his job? Tax collector, hang on. Where'd he find him? At the lake. Hold on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world together? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Mm. Now, once a rabbi had his disciples, he had to teach them to walk like him. What Jewish historians say is that you could always tell which disciples belonged to which rabbi by how they walked. And they meant that figuratively in terms of how they live, but they also meant that quite literally. You wanted to imitate your rabbi in every way. You wanted to live like him in every way. To be a disciple of a rabbi was to mimic your rabbi in every way of life. And so they would even, they would have walking practice. You would walk behind, which makes me wonder if there wasn't like some sort of like hip-hop rabbi in the first century. Right? But they would walk like their rabbi. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day was the line leader, just like today. If you were the best student of the day, you got to be the line leader, which meant you got to follow the closest behind your rabbi. And you could always tell who that was because these rabbis wore these special shoes and it would throw up dirt, right? And you could always tell, you could always tell who the best student of the day was by the one covered in dust from his waist down, right? But this was not dust you wanted to wash off. This was dust you wanted to show off. It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It meant to the whole world, I'm following the closest behind him. So you'd go back to synagogue and you'd be like, hey, <laughs> check out my dust, right? You wanted people to know that. Remember there's this one time? Jesus said, if you ever go to a place and they don't accept you, just shake the dust off your feet, right? In a rabbi's culture, that was a blessing, in other words, if they don't accept you, still be as kind as you can possibly be to them and cover them in your dust. 
That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to this. We'll either be covered in the dust of our rabbi or we'll be covered in the dust of our own issues. The dust of our dad, the dust of our mom, the dust of our denomination, the, my favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. No, no, we don't want to be covered in the dust of those things. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. Because if we're covered in the dust of our rabbi, we will cover others in the dust of our rabbi. I love the yoke of our rabbi. I find it so challenging and made like there's this one time. There was this lady and she was caught in the act of adultery. Like in the act. <laughs> in the act. Like that is not a great spectator sport. <laughs> like it would be embarrassing to be caught in that act if it was appropriate. She's caught in the act of adultery. Now, you guys know your Bible, right? What the Bible's clear on this. What does the Bible clearly say must be done to her? She must be, yes, yes. So they bring her out to Jesus. Think about it. Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with authority. Yes, yes. And they're trying to trap him. So they bring Jesus. They, they bring her this, this lady. They say, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. What's your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone the lady? No. Is he supposed to fulfill the scripture? yes. This is a problem. So they say, Jesus, the, the scriptures say stoner. We got our Bible verse for this. The scriptures say stoner. What's your yoke say? And Jesus was like, well, you know what? You're right. The scripture says stoner. So my yoke says stoner. There. I fulfilled the scripture. But wait a minute. I have Samika. Hold on. Hold on. I have Samika. Which means I can make up my own yoke. The scripture says stoner. So my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. Right? Right? And everybody gets tired of holding their stones. Jesus is writing in the dirt, you know. What's he writing? Everybody gets tired of holding their stones and walks away. And Jesus says to her, this is so good. He says, woman, he doesn't ask her what she did, doesn't ask her about it. He says, hey, just answer the question. Where are your accusers? She looks around. She says, they're not here. He says, great. Then I don't condemn you either. Why? Why? Because the scripture said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But it also says you need two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you don't sin, it's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. <laughs> Which leads me to this question. The yoke of our rabbi was kind to someone caught in obvious sin. How are we doing with that? Could our yoke do that? My yoke couldn't. The church I was brought up in was this old school, like when I say old, I mean like weird, right? Like the yoke of those people, they, if someone got caught in adultery, they would announce it from the stage, you know? <laughs> that is not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. That is a problem. 
that is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, Jesus challenged his followers, us, to be people who fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about one verse. There was one verse that says stone the lady. Sure, absolutely. And you can be right about that and stone her. Or you could do something more profound and you can fulfill scripture. How do you fulfill scripture? To do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, if you were caught in adultery, how would you want to be treated? You want to be let off, let off the hook, which Jesus did that. And you'd want to be challenged to change your life. He says, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. We reverse that and call it Jesus. We go, go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. What? No. It's because the kindness of God that we repent and we change our lives. It's a revelation of that kindness. Because God's not condemning us, we're now motivated to change our life. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of our rabbi, is this the Old Testament too? Like Hebrews 11 has all this list of heroes, you know. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, David. By Man, you go back and read their life. They all made mistakes with zeros attached. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would we be saying about Abraham? Would he be allowed to preach here? Or would we talk about his past? Isaac did something similar. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. God said, I'll have you write the foundation for the whole scripture. That'd be good, right? David had like, what, 700 women or something? 700 women. Good Lord. Right? And he committed adultery. You know, do you know what? There are churches today that according to their bylaws would never have David preach. But they'll open a book David wrote called The Word of God and fail to see the hypocrisy in that. Right? By faith, Solomon. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand. A thousand women. Lord, God said, I'll have you write the book on wisdom. Surely, you, you imagine that conversation, excuse me, sir, are you the man that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. Let's write a book together. <laughs> the yoke of our rabbi was always qualifying people we would disqualify. <laughs> There's this one time. I'm going to tell you two more stories, one from the Bible, one from my life, and, and then... We'll challenge ourselves a bit. Here's this one time. It's so easy to read over. It says, and, and Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Easy to read over. A couple things about that. One, Caesarea Philippi is a, like a 90-minute drive by a car from Galilee on a paved road. This wasn't just something you just decided to go by, right? Second, Caesarea Philippi was the place no Christian would go. It was debauchery, like, like the worst thing happening in Las Vegas tonight is Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi, right? Caesarea Philippi was the headquarters of the goat god Pan. It was an awful, awful place. I've been there. Actually, today, it's not called Caesarea Philippi anymore. It's called Panaya, which is the city of Pan, right? I've actually stood in the center of Caesarea Philippi, and I took a photo. Let me show you this photo. This is, um, this is the center of Caesarea Philippi. The reason that photo is of such high quality is because I took it myself, right? 
photographers everywhere trying to get other people's arms in the bottom left of their photo. They can't figure out how to do it. But I did it. This is the center of Caesarea Philippi. Now, uh, up there on the, on the right of that is, that, is the, that is the ruins of the temple of the goat god Pan. To the, to the left, see those big holes over there? That's a big cave. And, and they thought that was the entrance and exit to hell. They, they thought that was the doorway to hell. And, and the idea was that if you didn't worship Pan properly, he would open up the doorway of hell and swallow you into it. Now, here's the problem, right? Pan was a goat who received worship through intimate acts with goats, right? Actually, if you go there today, it's all on a plaque. They, they, they explain it. That, that on the right was called the Court of Pan and the Nymphs, it, like the Nymphos, right? Like this was a crazy, like whatever the worst thing going on in Auckland now, it is, this was crazy, this was craziness, right? Jesus took his youth group there. <laughs> that was their mission trip. Like, God had been fired for sure. Right? And there's all this crazy stuff going on. Like, you can't imagine it. You don't want to imagine it. And Jesus goes right into the center of that. And you can tell he's got, uh, he's got 12 guys with him, you know. He's like, there's all kinds of stuff going on. He has to focus them. He has to focus them. And, and remember, what, remember what happens there? Peter's like all jacked up. He says, if Jesus has to, has to focus, Peter says, hey, Peter, hey, hey. Right here, bro. Right here. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter shakes his head. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus goes into the center of that kind of debauchery and he doesn't condemn them. For what they're doing. He attacks the power behind the behavior. He's like, you're debasing yourself? You're acting like that? Because you're scared of this? And Jesus stood over the gates of hell and said, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox competitively. I fought in the U.S. Open. Uh, I placed high enough to be invited to the NASCAR World Championships. This was years ago. I'm 43 now, right? So we can end all that debate. I'm 43, right? And I, I went gray early. I went gray at 26, right? right? Like I've, I've, I've told people how old I was before, and people were like, Good. did they do experimental chemo on you or something? And I just went gray early. Right? So I'm in, no, I'm in no interest of fighting now. It hurts too bad to get hit. But back then, I could fight. And, and, and I, I came back from the U.S. Open, and, um, and I had a friend in the neighborhood. And he's one of these guys, one of these freaks of nature, you know. You, you know. you know, there's always that one guy in elementary school that, like, everybody else goes to recess, and he goes to shave. Like, this guy, this guy was shaving in, like, the fourth grade, right? He's just, he was huge. I am, I am six foot two, 85 kilos today. He was six two, 95 kilos in, like, the eighth grade. He was enormous, right? So we come back from the U.S. Open, and, and the trophies are all there. And, you know, my mom was one of those moms that's quite proud of you, you know. Anyway, so all the neighborhood is around. So this guy shows up. His name is Kenneth. And Kenneth shows up. He says, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I looked at him, and I said, I think you're right. <laughs> he said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, no, I'm serious. I'm not fighting you. He said, why? I said, you're twice my size, bro. Rule number one, you don't fight people twice your size. 
right? He goes, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could beat you. I said, boxing gloves? Oh, so our hands are going to be in a mitt. You can't grab me. You want to box? You said fight. You didn't mean fight. You meant a boxing match. You want to box? You can't grab me and take me to the ground? Let's go do that. That's no problem, right? So you could picture this. All the friends have gone in the front yard. They make a ring. Fight, fight, fight. And I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him half to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I couldn't hurt him. He's twice my size. But I was just in and out, in and out. Pop, 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 pop. You know? Started to irritate him. And he decided, I'm going to end this with one punch. And y'all, he threw a right cross that was unlike any right cross I'd ever seen in my life. Let me show it to you in real speed. Ready? Here it comes. I actually had time to think. I'll move now. When he finished throwing the punch, he left himself in this position. And I hit him harder than I've ever hit a human being in my life, before or after. Right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. His knees buckled. I sort of just stood over him like this. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him. But I never hit anybody that hard. So I was just like. He caught his balance. And he looked up at me. And now he was mad. <laughs> his face turned. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. When you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming at you, you lose. You know what Paul said about Jesus? He said the yoke of our rabbi was put on a public display at the cross. And here's what they did. They beat him and 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 they beat him. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. You can't do more to a guy than kill him. You can't. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving. And he finally died. And here's what I think happened. I think Jesus descended into hell. And he looked at Satan right in the eye and he said, boy, is that all you got? Was that your best shot? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No way. Three days from now, I'm going to walk out of here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who abandoned me in my time of need. And I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm going to ask them if they still love me after all this. And we're going to go change the world. Peter tells us later that the whole time Jesus was in hell, he was preaching there. I think that would have annoyed people. The yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. Jesus comes up out of the grave, and one of the things he does is he cooks breakfast on the beach for the very people who denied him in his time of need. That is the yoke of our rabbi. So... I bless you, my brothers and sisters of West Auckland, to not just be people on your way to heaven when you die, although we embrace that, but to be people who live like Jesus here. The hope for your country and the hope for the world is the yoke of our rabbi. I bless you to know that your rabbi believes in you more than you believe in him. He does. He believes in you more than you believe in him, and he's entrusted you with his yoke for this city, this community, this country, and ultimately the world. I hope Jesus got bigger for you this morning. I hope the cross worked better. I hope the resurrection central. I hope scriptures got bigger, not smaller. 
may we all not just be on our way to heaven when we die, but may we follow Jesus every single day. For that is the hope of the world. I hope you were blessed this morning, but more than anything, more than anything at all, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace.